Hello and welcome to In Good Company on MTS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atega Ubagbo. If this is the first time you're tuning in, a quick intro. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or at all good bookstores. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly, and you can listen to them live on NTS or download them via iTunes, so make sure you subscribe now to automatically get each new episode straight to your phone. We've got a great archive too, featuring some incredible women, so make sure you go back and listen to all of those episodes once we're done with this one. On today's show, I've got Mona Chalabi, who's data editor at The Guardian US and describes herself as a journalist who really loves numbers. Mona has written and presented TV shows for the likes of the BBC, National Geographic, Channel 4 and Vice. And she's one half of the team that created the Emmy-nominated video series Vagina Dispatches. And, as if that isn't enough, she's also been one of the select few who've been invited to give a TED Talk about her work. In recent years, Mona's carved out a niche for herself by making hard data and statistics far more accessible, by creating cleverly illustrated visualisations on topics that range from the political to the scatological. Her signature style of hand-drawn graphs and infographics have earned her a loyal following on Instagram. And if you spend any time at all on the internet, you've probably seen a couple of her amazing illustrations floating around at some point. I absolutely loved this conversation with Mona. We laughed a lot, as you'll hear, and we really veered, of course, in terms of talking about things that aren't just careers related, but I think are relevant to all women everywhere. Also coming up is our regular Agony Art segment, Ask a Tega, and this time I'm talking about how to deal with a nightmare boss. Before we get to that, though, let's hear from Mona. I've always... I don't know whether this is playing into a really sort of terrible stereotype of what women say that they're not good with numbers. Because like, you know, I am good with numbers. I'm financially literate. And, I, you know, I studied economics my first year at uni. And then I dropped it because I found the stats too hard. I found the quants and stat, you know, statistical modules really, really difficult mm-hmm. and theoretical. And so for me, that's always been like a barrier of like, oh, I'm not that good at that, even though I was reasonably good, good enough to get to uni level with it. Yeah. But I find it really just fascinating, your work. So... I suppose my first question is for people listening to this who don't understand exactly what a data journalist is. What is a data journalist and how is that different from a regular journalist? Um, So I would say that it's not really different. I still write stories in the same way that any other journalist would, except that rather than relying first and foremost on kind of interviewing people, my first source of information very often is statistics. Mm. And what's interesting is that I have a very similar experience too. I took economics in my first year at uni and I also dropped it. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And like I... I actually, so I didn't plan on going to university. I went to go and work in a bank when I left school. And then I decided I absolutely wanted to go to university. So I applied and LSE gave me a conditional offer, which was I could only go there if I got an A in A-level maths. Same, I had the same thing as you. Oh my God. And I had to sit it in one year while I was working at the bank. And I, I can't remember what I got. I either got like an E or an F. Like I'm not good at maths. And I think that there is something 
That is really interesting. When you say, oh, like, I'm worried that it's a cliche that, like, women don't feel good about it. But, like, I am kind of good at it, but I'm not good at it. The funny thing is, yeah, like, I was good at maths at school, but I always really... You know, I think it's about the sorts of teachers you have. And I felt like I had quite challenging teachers. Mm. And so I went from maths being my favourite subject when I was like a kid mm. to just suddenly hating and dreading it. And it was like, oh, I have to do an A-level in maths t- in order to get into I wanted to study PPE. Yeah, me too. So yeah, yeah. I was like, OK, well, I have to do A-level maths to get into and it. And what did you get in A-level maths? I got an A. <gasps> it was fine. Like, it That's, was fine. That is insane. I think that, really? that exam is so, so, so difficult. Really? I, Admittedly, I, I was trying to do the whole A-level in one yeah, year while exactly, I had a job. exactly. That's, still, very, that's a very different thing i still don't think i would have got an a i, I don't know think it's so hard i don't know i up to know i don't remember that much about it but i remember it was like an a scraped aim with a lot of work in my part whereas other subjects i did it was just like a breeze yeah um and then obviously when i got to uni um economics is so theoretical especially the way they were teaching it like i my first year of uni was just after um it was in 2008 just after the recession oh, the crash wow. And they were like, mm, so we don't actually know how to account for this. And we don't actually have any textbooks that reflect this sort of thing. So you can pretend in your first year exams that this hasn't happened. And we won't judge you for that. And I was like, this that is, is bullshit. Like, this is yeah. not relevant to yeah. the real world. So after that, I dropped it and just did politics and philosophy and was just like a sort of fluffy arts grad of whatever. But um, yeah, in terms of the sort of journalism that you do, do you have like a particular beat or a particular topic or issue that you're interested in or cover a lot more than others? Not really, you know. One of the reasons why I got into data journalism was because I didn't know what that one topic would be. And the Mm. thing that's really exciting about statistics to me is that they're just the language. Mm. So, like, let's say I'm talking to a friend about, like, you know, she thinks she isn't getting paid as much as her male colleague at work. Like, I can use statistics to have that conversation with her. I just love it. I think it's so exciting that you you can talk across all of these different subjects. Yeah. And, you know, we were just talking just now about the fact that you and I both think that, you know, maths wasn't something that came naturally to us, or I certainly didn't feel Mm. it was to me. And so I'm curious, because what you do now, I do think that in terms of, you know, statistics and and analysis, like there has to be a certain level of rigour to it, as I'm sure you agreed. Did you, have you had any sort of training to do what you do or is it self-taught? Like, how has that worked? Because not everyone can just sit down with the data set and just analyse it in a meaningful way and then draw stories out of it. How yeah. have you learned to do that? So I think I kind of just got immersed in it. When when I left university, I went to go and work for um, an NGO called the International Organisation for Migration that's now part of the UN. Mm-hmm. And I was working in their monitoring and evaluation department, kind of looking at statistics about how many Iraqis needed homes, needed shelter, that kind of thing. And because I just kind of got immersed in it, I got over the fear. So I got over this idea that like I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But I also think that what I'm doing actually isn't like in-depth statistical analysis, right? I'm like looking for patterns in the data, looking for correlations, testing whether one thing is connected to another, looking for patterns in like who is affected by something, how something has changed over time. And honestly, in terms of like a skill set, that's actually quite simple. Mm. And what I really, really want to communicate in in everything that I do is that you can replicate the steps that I have taken, regardless of whatever level of education you have had. And in a way, I think my kind of lack of really advanced statistical knowledge is a bit of an asset because I'm not doing very, very complicated steps. I'm saying, look at this racial pay gap. It's made when you average these figures. Like, you know, it's something that everyone can kind of get their head around. That said, I still kind of feel like a fraud sometimes. And I think all the time about doing a uh, master's in statistics so that I can like just walk into a meeting and be like, oh, I do know. Really? Yeah. But I think the beauty of what you do, and I do think it's beautiful. And I think also 
part of why I think it's really caught a lot of attention, caught the zeitgeist in a way that I don't think statistics usually do, <laughs> is the fact that you have managed to make it really accessible. And that, for me, was what caught my interest again, because I have this, you know, complex about maths and numbers in my head. And I was yeah. like, oh, actually, like, I'm really into what um, what Mona's doing. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it's illustrated. And so I want to understand, because you're, like, marrying two very different disciplines in a really successful way. So I want to understand how the illustration came about. Like, have you always illustrated and drawn or been like an artist? No, not at all. I It actually came about because I was miserable in a job that I was in. Oh, yeah. So the job that I had before the one that I have right now, mm-hmm. um, I was just so, I was just so, so, so unhappy. I was like... Why was that? Mm, honestly, moving, moving to America has completely changed my understanding of race and gender, I would say. Um, also, actually, it's interesting. Some of my friends who are still here have had a similar realisation at a similar age. So maybe I just became of that age while I was in America, but it felt that way. And basically, it was my first experience in a workplace that was... Um, well, actually, no, I'd been, in, I'd been in mostly white places before. But in this particular context, I was the only writer of colour. I was the only woman, female writer. And the confluence of those factors just meant that I was like invisible to them in a way that was really really surprising oh, to me i've been there i've been there just invisible yeah. like I, I i i give this example because you know I, you do so much work of being like is it me maybe i'm just not good enough and like this is one of the turning points for me because i was like oh no it's not me mm. i was in um we were it's an american organization and we were talking about how we were going to cover the uk election mm. also i was the only uh, writer who wasn't american mm who just so happened to be British, right, who has covered previous British elections. Mm. And we're in this meeting room and they're like, who could we have to cover the British election? There's 10 of us in the room and I'm one of them. Only British person in the room. Who could we have? Who could we have? I'm like, I wrote on my application letter to this job, like I've covered the UK election. They were like, this guy is great. This guy can do it. And the, this guy that they were referring to was a white bro who up until now, he was still in school and he was writing their blog about Scrabble. I've had pretty much the exact same experience at a, and do you know what I happily named them? It was Vice. <laughs> yeah. um, I worked there. And I mean, the reason that I'm quite happy to go on the record about it is because the New York Times have gone on the record about what it's like to work mm. as a woman there. And, you know, I had a really similar experience where, you know, I, okay, so I was sort of working on a project where, it involved a level of statistical analysis and I was like, okay, I'm not like degree level economics, but like I know a more than maths. you know, sorry, I know more than the yeah. average. And it was, you know, palmed off to this guy who no offense to English grads, it was like an English grad who was just out of uni but because he was like a lad and you know, I was always told, Oh, if you need need a brain on this project, you should ask this guy by my boss. And it honestly was the most um just crushing experience yeah. of my entire professional career. And I left because it really, but yeah, I was invisible. Like I wasn't part of Mm. the cabal of like, you know, white, straight, hipster males. And it was the first time I became really, well, not the first time, but it was a time where I became most conscious of my uh, gender in my career and the time where I became most conscious of my race as well. And that was a really um, devastating experience for me, which I've kind of grown from and like turned into a good thing. But yeah, I feel like, it sounds like we're describing and have gone through pretty much the exact same experience, which just makes me really sad that that is something that is... It makes me sad that my experience is universal, yeah. even though I suspected it was. Yeah. And so I can see how that kind of 
It's just militizes you. It's just such a turning point because I feel like up until then I had always thought if I just work my ass off everything will be fine. And in that moment you realize, oh, like no, 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 no. This nar- this feminist narrative that we've been given about fighting actually doesn't always make sense. Sometimes there are no glass ceilings to smash. Get the fuck out of the building and do something else outside of it. Like I just see so many women of color now that are just starting their own thing because they realize they're never going to make it within the institutions that are already formed. Absolutely, that is literally how I felt, and that's why. I'm self-employed now and it's so funny I always talk about the fact that I went to a really right on girl school and I'm one of three did you? (laughs) are you the same person? Um, and I'm one of three girls so feminism was never like a question in terms of how I was raised and I always kind of thought you know, there were discussions and my school really educated us about, oh, in the workplace, there's like a pay gap and all mm. these sorts of things. But I thought that getting into the world of work, it was going to be like a fun competition where like you get to show them that girls are just as good as the boys. And, you know, show them we were all actually taught that women were better than men. Like, you know, it was a really Same feminist yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. And then I got out into the real world and it was like a slap in the face, yeah. the reality of the situation. And that I think in some ways, I mean, my school did an amazing job preparing me for the world. And I'm so grateful. But in other ways, I wasn't prepared at all because I thought it was going to be like a fun competition I didn't think it was something that was going to wear on me and grind me down day after day and that has been a real realisation that I think you only get when you've kind of gone through it yeah I feel exactly the same like our narrative was so like girl power yes and it's like how children of the 90s I know (laughs) but how can they how can they communicate to us the the emotional and mental labour that faces us without completely crushing our spirits. Like, I yeah. don't know if there's a good way to do it. But I also right. feel like maybe my mum should have done more of that, right? Like, I feel like my mum... My mum was just like, oh, you can do anything that you put your well, mind that's to. that's the same as... Yeah, it's a very, like, immigrant parent thing. They were just like, work... And I, it's just like, why do you want to... You know, who wants to depress young brown girls by telling them that the odds are stacked against them when they are? You don't need to know that. But don't you think our parents, it's so funny, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I also feel like my mum has got a different tolerance. Her, like, um, her threshold for what constitutes racism, what constitutes sexism is different to mine, right? So for her, as long as she's not getting verbally harassed Mm. in the street or, like, feels the threat of physical violence, she's good. She's good. And so, like, the term microaggression to her means nothing. It means nothing. And if she would have found herself in that exact same situation that I would have been in, she might have been, like, pissed off, but she would have also gotten, gotten along with things. Whereas I think, yeah, and that isn't too... That isn't to diminish my experience. I think, like, we still need to do this work. This isn't to say, like, this isn't a battle that's worth fighting. But I think it's really interesting that, like, for her, I think the battles that she fought are are less visible to me now. Mm. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. That's exactly true because a friend of mine tweeted the other day about being in a coffee shop and she's, you know, Muslim, whereas in a hijab and she essentially just wasn't served for ages and like white person after white person came yeah. and got served and she was like, is it, she's like, is it something, is it nothing? And I was like, listen, if you think it's something, it probably is. Like, don't gaslight yourself yeah. like that's what they want us to do. But those sorts of situations, I think, because they seem minor and, you know, you're not being physically or verbally harassed or attacked or you're not in danger and no one's being outwardly rude to you it seems like it's not that big a deal but those things to me are more insidious and okay so we've kind of won the battle where people you know know that using the p word or the n word in public is bad um but now it's about you know what's also bad is you know an old white guy hiring only other white guys that's also racist it's just 
not seen as, you know, being as overtly problematic. And I think that's a battle we're fighting. And and the consequences of that, by the way, are enormous for our lives. They affect our financial security. They like they're not insignificant at all. But again, like my mum, my mum tells this story about how she this has happened to her a couple of times, but when she's gone to pay for something, she was buying a couch and she gave over her her um her like her credit card. And the woman in the shop was like, does your husband know that he, you're using his card? Because it said Dr. Chalabi. And she's like this tiny hijabi woman with like an accent. And my mum was like, hee hee. Like she, for her, she loves the reveal of being like, I'm the yeah, doctor. Yeah. Whereas I'm like. You'd be pissed. I'd I, be pissed. I'd be pissed. And I'm also like, what about for the people that don't get to do the reveal? Do you know what I mean? Where, yeah. where you're assumed. So you're you're a Muslim housewife because you've chosen to like not not work. Yeah. And and you can't then you can't sort of suddenly legitimize yourself in that same way. Not that it's illegitimate to have chosen to be a housewife. Exactly. But you don't have that kind of aha moment. Exactly. That your mum presumably and had. That aha and moment. that shouldn't be necessary in exactly. order to justify you buying a couch. Exactly. It's mad. Anyway, anyway we've gotten completely know, sorry, sidetracked. Sorry. But no, it's it's brilliant. It's so interesting to have those conversations and it's so relevant to work and careers all of these things we're talking about but I think my original question was how did you start <laughs> illustrating sorry so I was just saying that I got really 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 bored in this job particularly because like again as a woman we'll come back to this as a woman um they were asking me to like do statistics on like sex and love it's kind of what I naturally fell into um and I also John genuinely it's tricky as well because I actually really love doing those things because no one else was doing them and it was making the data more accessible um but yeah, so I just kind of literally, I was sitting in my little booth being ignored by everyone and just kind of started to draw stuff. And it was like, it was such a, a saving grace. Like I only realised in retrospect how bad my mental health had become. Like mm. I I cried every single day, which is not like me. I know, I know. Um, God, you're like, literally telling my life story back to me. It's really... <laughs> crazy so bad like I remember one week that was like particularly hard every lunchtime I would go out and I would go and buy a beer from like the corner shop and just go and sit on like on like the steps of someone's house and just drink the beer and then like fuck it like obviously I wasn't an alcoholic or anything but I remember I used to have to drink at least one beer in order to fall asleep because I had such bad insomnia because in my head I was like why don't they respect me why don't they respect me but I'm so good and blah 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 and blah blah blah. but maybe I deserve it no why don't they respect me maybe I'm not good like just in like replaying conversations that you've had with colleagues over and over and over and over and over again the worst thing about it obsessively the worst thing about it was that this contract because it was a startup the company was called 538 I'll name them too mm-hmm. it was a, it yes was a, <laughs> that's what, we're calling names out guys yeah. beyond notice luckily they are tanking <laughs> they are tanking can't yeah. say the same bad advice but we'll see about that you never know <laughs> um, and when you signed up because they know like they will get into deep trouble if everyone just dissipates because it, it, startups are hard they might make you si- sign something called the golden handcuffs which is that if you are to leave before a year and a half you have to pay the company $100,000 which obviously, yeah. So I knew from about two months in that I was going to be miserable. And I also knew that I was trapped, like absolutely trapped. And from that moment, it was just a countdown clock. It was horrific. Anyway, so the the, the illustrations really, really kept me sane. I used to be a smoker. And I just think in a world where we do so little physically, I don't work out or anything. Just even the, like just doing something with your hands has like mm. a profound calming effect on me. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And I think the thing that, really is kind of quite fun about your graphs because even the more serious ones I think there's like an element of humor in them almost like 
you know, you drew one, I think I saw one that was about sort of, it was about pregnancy and, you know, the likelihood of being your baby born before term, at term or wow, being you late. I, yeah, I went deep into the archive. Um, but I just thought, you know, that's a fairly serious or straight statistic. But then you illustrate with like a baby like popping out. And I just thought that's a really fun way to show the information. Anyway, I just I really like that one. But I, was, I also have another favorite graph. But I wanted to know, do you have any particular favorite is it is the um, word graph or chart either way okay. either way i'm not so fussed at all yeah do you have any particular favorite graphs that you've created or are there any that have gotten a really strong reaction from people um it's such a silly one to describe as my favorite but i'm really proud of this pie chart that i did because uh, i don't normally like pie charts and it's a pie chart where like if you imagine the triangle is at the bottom of the chart and it's mm -hmm. red and the rest of it is kind of like a, a peachy skin tone I've seen and that it's one. the chart that shows like the percentage of adults who experience rectal bleeding <laughs> i definitely do have a favorite graph of yours. i think this might have been when I first discovered your work, um, because it was embedded in a New York Times article that you wrote, and it was a chart which showed um, the most attractive ages to men and women. So essentially found that as women get older, I think, I hope I'm drawing the right conclusion, but as women you get are. older, they generally tend to be attracted to men who are kind of roughly the same or near their age. But as men, men, no matter what age they are, they're just attracted to 20 year olds. And I saw this graph and I was like, Oh my God, finally statistical evidence for the thing that I've long suspected, which is that men are trash. Like, yeah. it was really just astounding. And to see it there, it was literally from like the age of, I, just, I can't remember what the actual range was, but from the age of like, I guess, early 20s up to the age of 50, men on OkCupid are just attracted to 21 year olds. Yeah. And I just thought it was really interesting. But I was wondering what kind of prompted you to look into that particular data set or like what kind of. Yeah. That. So um, it's partly because of my tragic love life. <laughs> and I just see so many women my age, like dating guys who are significantly older and then settling down with them, mm. which I'm not judging in any way. But I feel resentful of that mm. because I feel like they're getting these extra years to work on their careers to, you know, do whatever. Yeah, yeah, to do whatever they want that I will not have if I end up settling down. And also age is just like... Age is like gender or race. It's like a power dynamic, right? And you have to consider that in a, if you're dating someone who's slightly older, that could potentially affect the power dynamic in your mm. relationship. And the thing that's really fascinating about this data is that OkCupid co collects it by, they have two different sources of information. They have what people say they're after. So like men will say they're interested in women who are like their age and younger. Um, and then they have people's behavioral data. So they have the data about like, these are the profiles that men were looking at. So they'll say <laughs> they're willing to date women. And that is the thing that is so fascinating. Trash. And, <laughs> and their race and dating data oh, yeah. is fascinating. I mean, I don't even need to, I'm sure you know exactly you know, no, what it's no, going to no, say. Exactly what and this is one of the reasons, like I'm, single and a lot of my friends are always like oh you should get on the dating apps you should get on the dating apps and there are a lot of reasons why um, and I don't judge people for using dating apps I'm literally going to a wedding next weekend that is a tender wedding like yeah. I think it clearly works but one of the things one of my many reservations about it is I'm like well it's different for me being a black woman on a dating app and I just don't know that I want to put myself through that and the insecurity and being judged and like I just I'm, I like I can I can do without that in yeah. my life I already have to deal with enough you know, shit as a, a black woman without actively seeking it out and putting myself in position to expose myself to more of it. Yeah. But yeah, I the race the race stuff dating 
I think black women are kind of at the bottom of the hierarchy yep, when it absolutely. comes to dating apps. Yep. So I'm and like, why would I put myself in a position to fail? Like, I like to win at life. So. Yeah. And it's black women and Asian men. And by Asian, I mean like the American definition of Asian, which like we in the UK just refer to as Chinese yeah, because yeah, we're so yeah, fucking yeah, racist. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that's really interesting, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's like one part of it is obviously rejection. People just like not wanting to date a woman of colour. Mm. And the other part of it is fetishization. Like I don't want to I don't be know with which someone. I honestly think actually the fetishization bothers me more because I worry that I would actually be interested in this person and I could potentially get hurt. If you reject me, it's like I love racists who are overtly racist because I'm like, oh, cool. I know where we stand. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Whereas, um, speaking yeah. of racists, <laughs> um, nice little segue because I want to talk to you about politics and living and working in America in the age of Trump because his presidency must have... I, assume slightly changed the focus of your work and you know or is that the case how have you tried to kind of reflect that in your grasp because I think what's interesting about what you do is that there's been so much discussion recently about the prevalence of fake news and mm. it feels like there's like a never-ending streams of politicians who have a very loose casual relationship with the truth including men like Donald Trump so do you feel like that's like impacted the levels of interest in your work or how has that kind of played into what you do? I don't know if it's affected the levels of interest in my work, but it's made me com more committed than ever, I think, to my style of writing and illustration. Mm -hmm. So every single time I get asked about fake news, I feel like people really do believe that there's this very clear cut dichotomy between fake news and truthful news. And the truth is that every single time we're writing an article, it's actually far more ambiguous, you know, and you, you see people trying to like impute this sincere writing to be like sources suggest blah 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 you know in all likelihood it's probably mm -hmm. and I feel like that act of like communicating uncertainty hasn't been done with grass and charts right mm -hmm. so you will read a statistic that says one in five black women and you're like hmm I'm not sure about that or you'll hear someone saying one in five black women but for some reason when it's in a pie chart or a bar chart you're like truth it feels like so rigorous because it feels scientific so part of the reason why I hand draw these things is to show you this isn't fake news and this isn't perfectly objective news this is like the best understanding we have right now of reality that's so true because I do think when I look at your work and when I look at your graphs and I don't know whether it's because I'm aware of you as a person but I'm very aware of the fact that someone has done this it's whereas if I look at like you know a sort of computer generated infographic I'm like this is fact yeah. this has been delivered by God on the tablets you know from on high whereas I am aware of the fact that someone has drawn the work and therefore has evaluated this and it's been through you know obviously hopefully not but been through your own personal biases if yeah, you have them absolutely. and you know and people look for the people look for the facts I'm not saying that you do but people definitely look for the facts they want I read this amazing book um last year you might have read it actually called Inferior by Angela Sini and it's basically mm -hmm. about how oh my god you'd actually love okay. this book you yeah. should definitely go and read it um but it's about how science over the years has been biased or how the subjectivity of the people who kind of have written the experiments, conducted the experiments, has led to this kind of societal belief that women are the inferior sex yeah. when actually it's all subjective. You know, Darwin, apparently raging misogynist, like, and that fed into a lot of his work and the fact that a lot of the science that we use to this day was um, sort of developed and 
came out during the Victorian age where there was a very different perception of the place of women's society, but we haven't investigated interrogated. It was just really, it's a fascinating book that I've told everyone about and I think it's very up your street. It so I'm going like yeah. to send you a copy because I think it's, it's absolutely perfect for you. And the way that that influences our daily life. So I'll give one example. That piece that you mentioned earlier on that I wrote about like why we probably shouldn't date older guys. Mm-hmm. So I, I know so many women who are in their early 30s like me who are like, shit, 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 I don't have very much time. Mm. Like, you know, I have this window in, in order to procreate. Now, our understanding of women's fertility is based on decades, centuries of research done by men. And men only focused on women's bodies in order to understand reproduction, right? So there is research that suggests that women who are in their mid-30s are struggling to get pregnant. However, that research does not take into account the fact that those women in their mid-30s are trying to conceive with men who are in their late 30s, early 40s. And the very few studies that have looked at male fertility do notice a very, very clear drop-off in male fertility once they reach those ages. So it's not just the fault of the women. So my plan that's so classic. My plan is to maybe just like enjoy the next few years of my life and then just hook up with a younger guy who's going to offset my <laughs> yes, younger son. Yes, I love it. This is such a plan. All of these stories that you hear about these men who are in their 50s and 60s who are managing to like have kids are all doing it with women who are in their 20s Very who are young. offsetting their old sperm. Yeah. Oh my God. Offsetting the old sperm. I love that. I never thought I'd hear those words. But it's completely true. Like it's, And I think again, those sorts of um, studies are conducted with the inherent bias of like women should have kids and women should have kids young and they go into it with that mindset and it just absolutely comes through in the data but we need people like you sort of encouraging us to go out and can I get say with so younger guys? Seeds? Yeah, I was about to say so artsies will definitely get with younger guys. That's something I can get behind. Have you had to deal with any criticism or backlash against your work? Yeah, absolutely. Like I posted an illustration, was it yesterday? Maybe yesterday or two days ago about um, Israel-Palestine. I knew that I was going to get a lot of backlash about that. So it was an illustration that shows the the monthly number of fatalities of Israelis who are killed by Palestinians and Palestinians who are killed by Israelis. That's always going to be provocative. Yeah. And What What was the response to it? I mean... Lots of people just being like, why are you sharing this data? And like, you know, I literally, I published it as a chart with just the source. Mm. Normally I would write like a little caption being like, you know, for example, I would be inclined to perhaps say something like, clearly there is a massive asymmetry here. Mm. Um, But I I knew, and I'm so, so cautious about... Even by virtue of putting that out, even without a caption, that people are always going to make interpretations about your biases just because of Absolutely. the information it's showing. And also because I'm a brown woman, right? The assumption is yeah. I am Arab, therefore I must sympathise with the Palestinians because of some pan-Arabism. And by the way, this also exists in reality that a lot of Muslims around the world do sympathise with the Palestinian cause, mm. partly because they're Muslim and mm. not even because of like the politics of it. Mm. So there's definitely some truth to that. I don't want people to think that like I'm such a critical and rigorous thinker. You're a statistician, so it's... I think, yeah, but then people are always going to assume that. And also, you know, there are journalists who don't have anywhere near as much as integrity as you. So I, not I can see, but I can see why people are sceptical. I think yeah. we have, I've certainly lost faith in a lot of the media over the last couple of years, I'm afraid to say. Not people like you, and there are certainly publications that I do still really trust and rely on more and mm. more. But I think there is a distrust of journalists. And there, I think there always has been. There are always people who I think feel very alienated from that sort of work, but... I think more and more these days people just think even really credible sources are 
bullshitting, yeah. which is just really sad. Um, I'm just going to say, statistically, your experience is uh, also a shared experience. So if you look at polling about trust, politicians and the media have both declined at a similar rate over the past few decades. So whenever we're sitting here criticising the politicians and the politicians are criticising us, like, they're both grounded in truth. Both of us are playing to, like, an existing narrative where the, where the public don't trust politicians and they don't trust us. So then who else is there left? Mate, I'm not fucking surprised. Like, I was thinking about this recently and I'm now talking about British politics, but if you look at, like, Amber Rudd and what it took for her to resign, I remember when I was a kid growing up, politicians would fall on their sword about any small thing. Mm. I think the threshold for what they had to do wrong and the sorts of lies that had to be uncovered was very, very low and they would have to resign. You've got freaking Boris Johnson who's still... I'm getting political now, but you've got Boris Johnson who misled an entire country into voting for Brexit. He's still got a fucking job, you know, in government. Whereas I think... 10, 15 years ago when I was a kid and teenager growing up, I think those are the sorts of things that would have been sackable offences. But the things that politicians are now able to get away with, and let's not forget about Donald Trump, like the kinds of lies that they're able to get away with are so much higher that, yeah, I'm not surprised that there's a huge level of distrust. And I also feel like there's a contempt for the public at large from a lot of politicians because what is your goal? Like, why are you in these positions? It's almost like so many of them have forgotten to have a different agenda that it's not to be... They're supposed to be civil servants. That is what a politician is. And I think so many of them have completely forgotten that and have their own agendas. But But do you know what I think the difference is? They're not accountable in the same way because the media has become so polarised that even, like, if you look at, like, the... Um, how profuse the number of channels has become. Like, it used to be that we would have these shared experiences of consuming media, right? Most people would watch the BBC News at night. We would all be, like, probably reading maybe The Times or something. Mm. I don't know. Like, there were these shared experiences. Whereas now, the the publications and the media outlets that are saying, Boris clearly lied about this, are not the same outlets that are being read by his supporters. Mm. So he can just ignore it. And the same thing with Trump. Like, The Guardian can write everything they like about, like, discrediting him. But if his supporters aren't reading that, it doesn't matter he doesn't need to fall on his sword does he fox news is there exactly um i want to change the subject a little bit and talk about vaginas Uh specifically (laughs) vagina dispatches because you created a four-part web series for the guardian that explores some of the i guess lesser discussed issues around women's sexual health such as menstrual health and the orgasm gap between men and women and that was nominated for an emmy which is incredible um, thanks. We didn't get it, but thanks. I mean, I don't think that the pool of people who can say that their work has been nominated for an Emmy is pretty small. Thank and you. also, there is always next time. And yeah, I hope, I hope, and assume there will be a next time. But about this, about the series, what motivated you to make it? Um, so I co-created it. I wasn't yes, only sorry, creator. I yeah, say. No, no, no worries. I co-created it with a woman called May Ryan, who is like my work wife. I absolutely adore her. Um, and I think those relationships are quite rare to find, you know, like I really don't think I could have done it with anyone other than her. Mm. Um, and we literally went out to lunch one day and I started talking about my vagina. I think this was like the second time that I met her. <laughs> uh, and I was like, you know, I just don't think I really know it. Uh, and like, we just kept on coming back to this conversation over and over again and it turns out that I really really didn't know it like it was only in the course of doing all the research for for this series that I realized how much I don't know and how much that lack of knowledge that ignorance affects has real health consequences by the way so like you know speaking to young people I've I've never ever used a douche for example Mm. because my mom was a gynecologist which I also think explains some of my fascination with uh, with vaginas for sure um 
But like she was always like only only use water. But the fact that so many women wash their vaginas with soaps, just to give one example, is massively damaging to our health. Mm. So yeah. And there are all these products. I remember. I think they're so irresponsible. But there's this like brand. It was called like Femfresh. Was no, that not, the one? Not no, even okay. Fresh, but like it was like Perfect V. It's it's you know it's it's created, Perfect V. It's no. created by like the Hills, like some graduate of like somebody who was on the Hills, like Low Bosworth or something. And it's like, and it's it's kind of like tapping into this wellness trend. And it was like. I feel like there were glitter sticks. It was comp- it was wild. I could not believe. And it's called Perfect V. And I was like, even that name is so damaging to imply yeah. that there is such a thing as a perfect vagina. And the whole point of it is that there are, it can look any which way. You yeah. Know? And it was, it just really made me angry. I was like, where does it stop? Where does it end? Like, which bit of my body needs to be perfect next? Like, I'm going to be, how do I get like the perfect rectum? Like, it's just, it's so far. And then you can probably go and buy anal bleach. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> um, what were the most interesting discoveries you made along the way because you said that you found out loads of stuff what's like something that really surprised you Mm. well one of the things that I'll say because it it didn't make it into the show because we only found it out quite late so we interviewed this woman who was a labiaplasty surgeon I kind of tried to push back on her a little bit saying that like do women really really need this and much later on in our filming, we ended up interviewing a woman who um, does pelvic floor therapy for women who have conditions like vaginismus, which is like a permanent kind of, not permanent, but it's a very, very painful condition where... It's like um, tightening. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and she said that a lot of the patients she sees are women who have had labiaplasty. Shut and up. I wish I had known that ahead of time. So like... And labiaplasty, by the way, is one of the fastest growing plastic surgery trends. Again, partly, I think, because porn is so... (laughs) Porn is everywhere now. And most of the women who are in porn have had labiaplasty. So women don't understand that if, if you're in a labia hang lower than your outer labia that doesn't make you a freak that doesn't mean and and the surgery by the way is so violent it's just cutting off and again I just anyway I just find it so funny the way that like we talk about things like female genital mutilation and like to me that's a form of female genital mutilation even if it's self-selecting which is obviously different to women being forced to do it I understand that but I also think we should interrogate why women feel that they need this absolutely I find that really sad especially the fact that it can then go horribly wrong and something you know I I don't ever want to judge a woman's decision to um, have cosmetic surgery, but there there just feels like that feels so unnecessary in a way that and not that any cosmetic surgery is really necessary. It's one thing you know if you've been in an accident, I can kind of reconstruction and mm. you know cancer survivors that sort of thing, but when it is so natural, like your your vagina is probably perfect because you were born that way and all vaginas are different but when it's so inflicted by modern um sort of beauty standards like a friend of mine sent me this animation the other day it was beautiful I'll send it to you actually and it was about beauty standards through the ages and it was created by it was really kind of seminal artwork so it'd be right from like Mm. you know 16th century renaissance kind of paintings and it was like a two minute animation and then it'd kind of go from like painting to painting really recognisable stuff you know I didn't know the names oh I've seen that Mm. and then it got to like the last 20-30 years and they were obviously emulating like the Kardashians and I was like isn't it funny that for like the majority of human society even though humans have always kind of women have always worn, worn makeup and altered their appearance but it's only in sort of the past couple of decades where we've been able to so drastically alter our appearances Mm. in unnatural ways and that has so quickly become the beauty standard whereas you know 50 I don't know when plastic surgery really kind of took off but a while back you just kind of had to make the most of what you had and yeah you could wear coal eyeliner and I know that like you know the Egyptians used to I think like 
put arsenic. I don't, I don't know. There are all sorts of like home remedies, but for the most part, you presented to your, yourself to the world the way you were born. And I just find it so sad when I look at certain women in the public eye and just think, you are, you, you, you are mutilating yourself in pursuit of a beauty standard that is false. Yeah. Um, and the biggest difference with those historical examples that you mentioned, I think, is the health risks. There are yeah. no health risks to wearing eyeliner. There are no health risks to wearing heavy, heavy makeup. Yeah. And even I would draw the line between like having a breast enlargement and having labiaplasty. The health risks of both are massively different. Yeah. You could potentially not be able to like Oof. have comfortable intercourse after having a labiaplasty procedure. Exactly. Like your vagina serves so many important functions. That's where you urinate. You, like you you live with your vagina every single day it performs mm. these functions if you are jeopardizing that in the pursuit of a, of a bizarre of a, a false beauty ideal that's very different i think to any other kind of procedure no, I, I totally agree with you um to change tax slightly <laughs> i want to because we've really kind of jumped all over the place i love it um i want to talk to you about being a polymath i think that's the right word because i would say that what you're is a polymath i've never heard that i think word. it's someone Sorry. who can do lots of different things oh so i feel like you're kind of maths a, in there that's weird yeah yeah, which, this is just the theme yeah, of today, yeah. maths. Um, but I kind of feel like you're sort of this kind of modern day renaissance woman. Like you, you write, you analyse data, you produce, you host, you illustrate. Like you do lots of different things. I started to act as well. Have you? Yeah, it's really, really? fun. Yeah, in yeah. what? My my friend uh, in New York was making like a, a small video series, and she was like, "Can I put you in it?" And I was like, "Sure." Um, and then when I arrived on set, I was cast as Lucille, the journalist, and like Lucille was. <laughs> mm, I wonder. Mm, I wonder. Where. And Lucille, I told this friend that Lucille was my fake name when I went to university because I was anyway. I I chose Lucille for really fucking weird reasons. <laughs> Um, if you email Lucille underscore Chalavie at hotmail.co.uk I will receive it oh my anyway God. Um, and it was so much fun it's been uh, it got into Tribeca what? and like I want to do loads more of it it was Did really really fun what I was going to ask is whether you have like a favourite discipline is there like a favourite thing that you love doing you just love doing no, it I, yeah I really don't want to give up on any of those things like I just think I think the more tools that you have at your disposal it means that when you're when you have a story so let's say um this is such a dumb example, but you know, I dropped my phone as we were coming in here yeah. and I was like, oh, and you're like, oh, what are the chances that like, I'm going to break my phone or whatever? If you know how to communicate something on video, in a podcast, in a piece of writing, in an illustration, it means that you can choose the best medium for that story as opposed to just trying to force it into this so kind of thing. True. And I think a lot about accessibility. Like I'm trying to make my data visualizations more accessible to people who are visually impaired or blind. And so knowing those different tools, I think, is going to be really, really powerful to making sure that I don't alienate anyone. That's such a smart way of thinking about it. Because I was going to ask whether it was a conscious decision from a money. Yeah, well, I mean, that too. Because <laughs> I was sure. about to say, like, listen, Jen, Journalism is a difficult industry to make a living in. It's a diff difficult place to find a secure job in. And I was thinking, as a journalist, having all these different skills makes you more valuable to media outlets. So I was wondering whether it was a conscious decision in terms of that or I, whether you've even found that to be the case. Mm, I definitely th think that I feel more secure financially knowing that I have these different routes I could mm. possibly take. Absolutely. And I think journalism is in some dire straits. Mate. I know. It's bad. It's bad. But also, honestly, it's just that I really enjoy using these different things. Like, it's just so fun. Yeah. It's so fun. Yeah. yeah. I suppose... And I. Back to what you were saying, I suppose it must just be quite freeing, like you say, being able to choose the right 
format for I think in some ways that's kind of why I started a podcast because mm. a lot of the content I was putting out with women who was like written or it was events whereas this is a format where you know I don't have to transcribe and edit you know I edit these afterwards but I don't have to transcribe and edit I don't have to cut certain things yeah you can really hear the kind of tone and warmth of the person and it just really lends itself for interviews whereas mm. I was kind of doing them writing written interviews also work because you can add added context but it just suddenly felt like a lot of the conversations that I was having with women one-on-one I'd leave being like, I wish I'd recorded that and just like yeah. posted it somewhere. So yeah. that's that's why I started the podcast. Um, I want to ask you a few general questions yeah. just to wrap up. <laughs> um, so, so you obviously you're living you're living in New York. Mm-hmm. How long have you lived there for? Four years now. Okay. Yeah. And what prompted you to move there? It was the job at five thirty eight. So I left my job gotcha. here in order to go and do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And now that you're data editor at the Guardian US, what does an average working day look like for you? Um, it's all kinds of different things. I'll kind of like arrive into work. I'll have a couple questions from colleagues who are researching something, who are looking for data on a particular topic. Okay. So I do a lot of that, yeah. Um, or who already have statistics and are asking me to check their kind of like reliability. Yeah. Um, or maybe I'll try to find something that's more recent. And then loads and loads of meetings, unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah, I tend to like do illustrations mostly on evenings and weekends. Occasionally I'll draw at work. Um I have quite a good social life. I'm very, very proud to say. Like it's one That's of the things <laughs> it's one of the things that makes me a little bit reluctant to move back to London because I feel like I mean, it's partly because of the way that you navigate London as opposed to New York. Mm. But like people go out maybe like it seems, or at least when I was living here before I moved, people go out a couple times a week. I go out for either like a drink after work or dinner every single night of the week. That's such a New York thing. And especially as a single woman, like my life feels so full, you know? And yeah. I think maybe if I went home to my flat and like didn't have that, maybe I would feel quite lonely and bored. But I think it says a lot that you, even as like a transplant to that, because also, you know, Finally, you've been there four years, which is some time and enough time to build up a social group. But I would always say that, you know, you probably have more friends Absolutely, in London yeah. than you do. In the, but the fact that you managed to have a thriving social life probably says a lot about the lifestyle. of New- And I've always found that they're just very like, yeah, go out and like get a cocktail and like go to the bar. And it's just really, whereas here it's like, maybe you'll go to the pub with, not that I resent my friends if you're listening, but maybe you'll go to the pub with the same friends but there's just people are so much more routine and like yeah. in a rut and like, oh I can't go out tonight it's a Tuesday and it's yeah. like why? why 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 is that I mean, I've never I, I can be I can be the same though like I've completely fallen into that London lifestyle and I think now like with summer I'm like okay I just go out and be more social but there's not the same level of spontaneity yeah. in London that I think there is in New York I mean I would say that most of the people who I hang most of my close friends actually in New York are other immigrants really? and it's been such an interesting eye opener to see like, it's just not surprising that immigrants hang out with other immigrants. Like, I didn't really think about it that much when I lived in London. Mm. Apart from the fact, I suppose my parents didn't really have many mates. They never really mine, had many. Yeah. Either. Yeah. And it's partly because there were no Iraqis in the area that we grew up in. Mm. But also, I don't know, I just always thought it was because they were focused on the family. But I think it's also just hard to make friends with people Absolutely. who are, have, don't have the same cultural... Yeah. And especially at the times... That they immigrated here. I mean, my parents, we moved here from Nigeria when I was five. So in uh, like the late 90s, I can't remember exactly what year, like 95 it would have been. I was five. Yeah. Um, but I think even the past 20 odd years, there's probably been a shift in how receptive people are to immigrants. And I don't mm. know when your parents moved here, but it's also a cultural thing. And it's like, you know... My parents have made this their home, but I don't know whether it's their home. Like, it's not their home in the same way it is yeah. for me. Um, and if I were to move somewhere, you know, 
they moved when they were in their 40s. If I were to move somewhere 20 years from now, I'd never think of it as my home home. It'd be like where I am for now. Well, not even 20 years from now. I think even if you were to move somewhere now, well, honestly, yeah. like it's it's really, really weird. And I do worry that the longer that I stay there, and I do want to stay there just because career-wise it's better. That's the mm. main driving force. Um, I think it'll be hard to come back and I think it will be hard to stay. And I and I don't know, I think that's kind of what happened to my parents. Like the thought of going back is unthinkable. Yeah. But this is also like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and what's the most challenging aspect of what you do of your job? Hmm. Um, I'd say it's quite... Um, it's quite exhausting. It's quite tiring to do it. And I also feel like a lot of it is on me as a person like I mean there's the privilege of like you know having a bit more visibility and kind of doing work on your Instagram that's of your own and isn't necessarily just tied to the organization mm. but that also means that all of the all of the reputational repercussions of that fall on me and that can be quite like stressful mm. sometimes yeah so like with the thing that you've just put out with the um Israeli-Palestinian conflict yeah yeah um and does the I don't know whether you can say but does the Guardian have any kind of opinion on what you can and can't put out because you are a representative of theirs yeah in a way no they, they're totally great okay. about me doing whatever I want on my Instagram but like I said like the the consequence of that is that it kind of falls but to me yeah it's not on them yeah they're a bit like well you are on that platform you are your own agent yeah but um, also I'm just so lucky like I get to do what I want in this way that like so few people have that like yeah. privilege and opportunity so I just don't want to I don't want to whine about it you know? yeah yeah, 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 totally yeah. I get what you mean um what do you wish you'd known about journalism when you started out or what advice would you give to you 10 years ago or someone who has you know just left uni and wants to get into journalism mm. um Honestly, like, because I care so much about, like, financial security. Again, I think it's, like, a very much an immigrant, immigrant mentality. Thing, yeah. Seriously, yeah. I'm like, get that money. Yeah, and I, I'm not ashamed of it because, like, I see how much, like, yeah, I just see how hard my parents worked to get, like, some financial security and how easily that can slip away because of, like, unforeseen circumstances. So, anyway, I would honestly say to most people, unless you're from, like, a very moneyed background, which is problematic because we don't just want wealthy people writing the journalism that we consume, mm. just make sure that you have other routes of getting money at the same time and also make sure it's the, the thing that you can't not do, you know? Like, the thing that you ha just have to have to do it, then fine, just go ahead and do it. Yeah, it's really funny because I did lots of student journalism when I was at school and at uni. But then when I was kind of considering my career options post uni, I was like, I can't afford to do that and to do that. And my parents live in London, so I did have that privilege. But even then I was like, I cannot afford to not be paid and not yeah. be earning. And also it just wasn't in my mentality. I was like, I need a paid job. And that's how I ended up in advertising, which in its own way was really interesting. Great. And that's what I that was kind of my first career until I left and, and became self-employed. But um, that was that was a money decision. Um, yeah. And now I'm kind of getting to do a lot of the stuff that, you know, I wanted to do. And actually, I've kind of brought a different perspective and skill set to it. And I have a lot more agency than I think I would have if I'd gone directly into journalism straight out of uh, uni. But it was a money thing. I was like, I need to make money. And I still feel like I need to make money. Like yeah. I'm very money minded um about the stuff I say yes to about the kind of fees I ask for and make no mistakes about it I think a lot of times people who you know talk about creative industries and creative work and they're like oh I'm in it for the love of it and I'm like yeah I love what I do but it's work and I want money yeah like, it's, yeah it's that simple like, I, I never forget I think 
what I need in order to be happy. Mm. And whilst I definitely feel like I'm taking a circuitous route to, you know, complete financial stability, and I have a certain degree of that now, I do know in the long term that that is a major goal for me. And I think that is being the children of immigrants as well, who've worked so hard, sacrificed so much. I'm like, if I'm going to do this kind of slightly fluffy thing, and, you know, I could have gone and been a doctor or Or a lawyer lawyer or a banker. (laughs) I had that all set up for me. Yeah. Um, If I'm going to do this slightly more experimental thing, then I have to make it work. I have to be good at it. But it's also about fairness, right? When I get asked to like either write or illustrate things for other people, I do. I have one rate for non-profits, charities, things that I care about. And I have an entirely different one for huge corporations that are approaching me to like, I don't care. I don't think it's greedy to ask for a chunk of what they have for the services that I'm returning to them. Absolutely not. I have a really high sense of my own value and worth. And I'm like, if someone is approaching me to work for them, And they have money. I'm like, seriously, give those coins. Um, (laughs) And my final question, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of relevant to what we're talking about now, is I'm actually so intrigued to hear your answer to this question because I feel like I'm going to be like, me too. Um, Is it about being single? No, 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 no. no. It's not about being single. We're going to talk about that off air. What's your definition of success? Oh, that's a really good question. I think about this a lot because I I feel like I'm kind of walking around with like a headband attached to my head with like a carrot just in front of me. Like success is always a thing that's like a couple steps out of reach, Mm. which I think is actually maybe quite a damaging mindset. Like I think I've done things that like the things I always wanted to do that would have been success. And as soon as they're in the rearview mirror, they're nothing. Um, so like, <laughs> literally like wave my hands in the air. That's that's a real problem that I have, um, and I think is also damaging. Of I've started a thing where I write down when I sort of tick off because you know I, I make a lot of lists and I have like career goals mm. and things I want to do in twenty eighteen, and you know I looked at back at one that I made a few years ago recently and I was like I've actually done, done stuff on yeah. it and I hadn't appreciated it. So now I start writing down when I do something cool. I just write it in the back of my notebook, but. And you need to celebrate those successes, yeah. definitely. And like celebrating it doesn't make you less ambitious. It doesn't stop you being feeling driven. Um, but you need to give yourself a little nibble at the carrots. Yeah. I don't know. I don't. I would love. I would love at some point to maybe buy a home for myself in New York. Yeah. Uh, so you're really committed to that, the whole I don't American know. life. I don't know. Like the I don't know. Dream. I say that, but like I also think I kind of want to see if Trump wins another term before I do anything that will stick my feet into what does it mean to you success um I mean financial comfort and stability is a huge huge part of it yeah um being able to take care of my parents um is also a huge part of it being able to have good relationships with my friends my friends are very important to me and on the professional side of things that's actually that's all kind of personal stuff I do I do want a bit of I do want to have a bit of a reputation. I know that sounds quite vain. But Not at all. Because I do want a bit of status and I do want people to recognise me as being amazing at what I do and for my name to carry a bit of weight and also to genuinely help people and be of value. Like one of the things that I just really struggled with, and this is not a slur against the ad industry in general, um, because I do enjoy working with brands and media, but in my last role, I really felt like what I was doing wasn't of any value to anyone. Mm. Whereas I feel with what I'm doing with women who and like just with women and work women, like I I know it's a value to people because women write to me and tell me. And I'm like, well, if I can marry that with 
my own interests. I was talking yesterday with a friend about, you know, the like Venn diagram. It's like what you're good at, what is of value and what pays you. Mm. And right now I feel like I'm actually in the middle of those three. And so that I kind of want to stay there, but grow. Yeah. Yeah. What an amazing thing to be in the middle. (laughs) Yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, I think that's maybe a good place to end. But um, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. (laughs) This has been, I feel like I've made a new best friend, guys. You're not going to hear the end of me in a moment. On this month's segment of Ask Otega, a letter from someone who's dealing with an incredibly difficult boss. Here it is. Dear Otega, I'm having some difficulty with my manager who's essentially been lying to me, lying to others about my work and constantly belittling me. If he ever makes a mistake over something, rather than taking accountability, he simply places the blame on me, saying that I'm junior or still learning when I haven't even touched the work in question. I've had conversations with him about his tendency to patronise me or belittle me, but have recently discovered that he's been using me as a scapegoat for other things that have been going wrong, And now I feel like I have to have a conversation with him about that. Should I involve someone else in that conversation? What's the best way of going about this? On a personal level, he's a very kind man. But on a professional level, he's pedantic, difficult, chaotic. And I fail to see what work he actually does. Instead, it feels like me and my colleagues are constantly having to clean up after him. I'm newer to the team and frankly, I'm baffled as to how and why this has been allowed to happen. Any advice you can offer would be hugely appreciated. You're sincerely stuck in a toxic situation. Gosh, my reaction on first reading this is what a freaking nightmare. Um, and also that this actually sounds really serious. Um, I think this guy, your boss, is not only stopping you and your team from doing your jobs properly, but he's also essentially trashing your reputation and making you look bad to the people that you work with and the company. And I think the really frightening thing is you don't even know how bad the extent of it is. Like, you know what you're discovering and what comes to your attention, but it could be far worse. And I'm not saying that to scare you, but I'm saying that to really impress on you the importance of this situation. Um, And even though it sounds like a few other people within your team are kind of sharing the burden with you, I think the sad thing, given that he's more senior, is that it's often the case that people within the company might believe him when he says that you're the problem and not him. So the first thing that I would say about this and with working with him in general is to get everything in writing. And this is what I've always done whenever I've worked with individuals who I would describe as slippery. Um, If he gives you instructions in person, replay them back to him first of all in person and then via email. So situations like this, documentation is key. If things then go wrong, you can kind of refer back to those emails, whether it's kind of bringing them up with him and you can also use them to build a case with HR if that becomes relevant and I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, In the moment, when he accuses you of messing up something that isn't actually your fault, I think just really politely and calmly push back on that and challenge him so not in a provocative or inflammatory way so if he says for instance oh my gosh you were I don't know supposed to send those files to the client last week and you didn't and now they're annoyed blah 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 blah, and everything's messed up just kind of have start a conversation with him about it and say something like you know I don't recall being asked to send those files do you mind reminding me of when we discussed that and just trying to really just kind of lead him to the point of showing well actually you didn't tell me that but It does sound like, even if that is the case, he sounds like an outright liar, so maybe that won't 
be that effective. So I would also say privately, you need to be making notes of everything that's happening that he's doing. So the stuff about him scapegoating you, all these instances where he's acting inappropriately or blaming you for stuff, you need to be making notes, keep a physical written diary, put in dates, times, direct quotes, details, and also tell at least two other people at the time of these things happening outside of your company what is happening because if god forbid you know he tries to have you fired or tries to throw you under the bus in a way that you could end up fired for a mistake that he's made these sorts of records are the sorts of things that could come in really handy if things escalate and you need to take it to an employment tribunal and again i'm not trying to scare you this is worst case scenario but i think you should really recognize that this could get worse if left unchecked and it could also escalate in ways that you can't foresee um so yeah first of all also just try politely but firmly challenging his account of events in person just so that he kind of knows you're onto him you know challenge him with facts try that for a few weeks and see how that goes if that doesn't work i think you might need to go to hr about this i wouldn't go to his boss if he has one i would go to hr preferably with specific examples and instances in mind and so this is where the diary or the log that i've told you to keep will come in handy explain to them what is happening you know, be very unemotional about it. Just kind of lay out the facts. Again, having examples will really help um, because it's actually a very form, you know, serious situation. And it is one that you might need to consider making a formal complaint about if your boss is straight up lying to you and blaming you for stuff. But yeah, if broaching it with him in person in a non-challenging way doesn't go well, then I think you need to approach HR as your next step. So good luck. If you've got a career question you'd like my advice on during next month's Ask a Tega segment, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup. That's www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter. You can find me at Otega Uagbert on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, please don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please do leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next time. Anti-S.